This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to this event with May Al-Nakib and Tom Barbash. I'm Serena Field, I'm a BBC Arts producer. And one of the books we'll be talking about this evening, May's book, The Hidden Light of Objects, which is this one here, is in the running for the festival's first book award and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Tom's book is Stay Up With Me, just here. It's not in the first book award simply because it's not his first book. <laughs> but there'll be a book signing after uh, this evening's event and you can have a look at both of them. But in the next 55 minutes, I'm going to ask May and Tom to give us a sense of their work, to do a short reading each, and we'll speak here on the stage and then there'll be a chance for you to ask questions. As a chairperson at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, part of your job is to provide a structure for your event. We're given just the basic information about the event, who we'll be talking to, and we're trusted with lots of freedom to be creative in terms of what we do with the event itself. And when you have two authors, your starting point is to think why the book festival team put the books together. And in this case, it seems to me that these collections of short stories have a lot in common. Most obviously, they share a strong sense of place, in the case of Tom's Stay Up With Me, it's New York, both New York City and upstate New York. And for May, it's the Middle East, particularly Kuwait and Kuwait City. And in both collections, we meet characters so well drawn that we feel their entire lives behind them. And even with peripheral characters, it seems like they could have their own short story. Of course, in both collections, the characters struggle with the stuff of life, change, grief, loss, memory, regret and love. Some very quick introductions to our authors this evening. Although this is his first collection of short stories, Tom is an award-winning author of fiction and also non-fiction, and he lives and teaches in California. And May was born in Kuwait. She studied in the USA, and she now teaches at Kuwait University, and she's writing her first novel. So could you please join me in welcoming May Al-Nakib and Tom Barbash. I thought perhaps we might start with just a quick word about the short story before we hear more about each book. Um, Tom, I understand that the short story was the, the first form that you, you fell in love with and that Tobias Wolfe, um, author of This Boy's Life and of course many short stories, was your first workshop teacher. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you love the form and, and what you learned from Wolfe and others? Yeah, well, um, th I, that workshop... Um uh, he should not have let me in. He let me into his graduate workshop. I was a reporter at the time, and everybody else had written a ton of stories. And I'm, my primary job, I felt like that semester, was to read stories and in a different way. It was the first time I had ever read stories five, six, ten times. And I, I'd yeah. only read stories once. And then I f figured out that that was what it was about. It was about not just the satisfactions you got in the first read, but w with a great story, uh, it, the sixth, seventh read, you were getting new th finding out new things. Um, and, and in terms of what I love about it, I, I mean, I love what you said. I hope it's true about sort of feeling a life through a story. I always tell my students that you have an entire life to choose. Why are you choosing this night, you know, this particular week in a character's mm -hmm. life? And the, the notion is, is that you feel the weight of a lifetime on a single moment, you know, or, or a series of moments, or that all the sort of issues that a character has are present, are tested in a single moment. And... So I, I love that aspect. I love the intensity of it. With short stories, there's not a lot of revving up to a moment. You're dropped right in the middle of that kind of intensity. And um, so that, that's an aspect uh, that I really like about it. Um, that, um, and for me, my particular stories 
it's been interesting. I felt like I've been on the therapist couch during my you know, experience with reviewers and readers because I don't think I knew necessarily what it was I was writing beforehand and I have more of a handle on it afterwards. And my quick sense of, of how I write is I think a lot of my fiction is pre-epiphanal. So it's, it's people who are in a moment where something has happened to them and even an outsider might know it better than they do. And they're acting in ways, they're not doing what they think they're doing in some ways. And so, and that interests me. I, if someone begins a conversation telling about a period of their life and they say, I wasn't myself during that period, I'm instantly interested because that's, that's where I like to go as a writer. So. Okay, we'll pick up on a lot of those, yeah. those points later on. That's fascinating. May, what do you love about writing short stories and who do you admire in the form? So it's funny, I turned to the short story as a form for two reasons. First, I thought I wanted to write a novel and I thought the short story would be more manageable. And I thought it would be a good way to kind of prepare myself to write this kind of bigger, um, more sprawling form. I was right and, and very wrong, I think, in some ways, because yes, there's a certain lim limit by definition. The short story has a limit. It's, it's, there's a, a, a length you know, that you can't sort of go beyond. But at the same time, it demands a kind of precision and intensity, like you said, uh, of, of a kind of experience or something that's happening to a particular character that makes it really unforgiving. And I think that, that there's, it's a very demanding form. I think poetry in some ways is an even more extreme or intense um, version in some ways. And so for me, then it became both a good way to prepare, but also in some ways much more difficult or much more than I expected. It is an, a form that I, I really have come to love. Uh, and in fact, there, you asked who, who are some of the, the you know, short story writers. Hassan Kanafani, a Palestinian writer, his, his short stories have been really moving and important to me. But um, Chekhov is another writer, of course, that, that is, is really important to me also. So I think that you know, there is something about the short story that I find particularly, like I said, unforgiving. Um, but it's, it's a form that I keep re returning to. And I think even with a novel in, pr in progress, mm -hmm. it's a form that I'm still drawn to. Okay, I think we should hear something about both of these collections. Um, so May, could you give us a bit of an introduction to the hidden light of objects and, um, and then go into a bit of a reading for us? Yeah, sure. So Thanks. I thought I'd spend more time just talking a little bit about the collection because I, I'm not sure how familiar you know, this audience would be. First of all, thank you for being here. It's really fantastic for me to be able to present this collection at the, the, the festival. So The Hidden Light of Objects is a collection of loosely linked short stories set mainly, though not exclusively, in the Middle East. Um, the stories don't deal explicitly or overtly with the complicated geopolitics of the region. They emphasize instead the everyday lives of the people who live there. Many of the stories are in, in the collection are linked to Kuwait, the country I happen to come from. In writing these stories, I began to realize that in fact I was lamenting a place, Kuwait, the Middle East, that no longer exists. This is of course no great surprise since childhood locales change for many of us wherever we happen to come from. But coming from my part of the world specifically, I'm incredibly alert to the fact that childhood places don't just change, they can be obliterated by occupation, or war, or accelerated development, or short-sighted governance. 
to me, the changes in the last 20 years in Kuwait have felt particularly acute, faster and harsher than they occur in Sweden, for example, or France. They have been ex as extreme as the changes that occurred in Kuwait in the two decades after the discovery of oil from the 1940s to the 1960s. At the same time, I don't consider the collection merely uh, as a lament to the past. I think of the stories much more as experiments with memory. Why do we remember what we do? As a writer, I'm especially interested in how such remembered moments motivate writing, but beyond that, how they motivate people and characters to narrate their lives in highly specific ways. So my concern is not with the past as such, but with the process of remembering the past and how that impinges on the present. The process of remembering is something that we all share. So reading about such processes in books becomes a way to connect readers to characters and writers to audiences. Soon into the process of writing the stories that would compose the collection, I realized that they weren't separate from each other. By the third or fourth story, I noticed that certain images kept recurring. So did specific words. Some of the characters reappeared unexpectedly, and most importantly, particular objects did too. All this gave me a strong sense that the stories were related and made sense together. I began to see them as lines that intersected. The stories don't follow one after the other in any strict chronological order. Each one can stand on its own and make sense read independently. But the 10 stories that compose the hidden light of objects are loosely connected to each other through character, tone, language, images, vignettes, and a series of objects. Together, the stories resonate and overlap in a way that creates a contrapuntal form. So as the title of my collection suggests, objects and their secret lives are central to the work. My stories explore the ways in which the hidden light our special objects emit makes us aware that alternatives to the present are always possible. The seeming rigidity of the present, of where we happen to be now, is loosened up, made fluid, by the shock of realizing that the objects in our lives in fact share our life, are inextricably connected to our very being. If you don't believe this, Consider the experience of seeing an old pipe smoked by your dead grandfather, or of finding a tarnished ring given to you on your 10th birthday by your best friend. Special objects can trigger unexpected memories, and such remembered moments, those sparks Virginia Woolf called moments of being, inform our lives in singular ways. In most of the stories, we see characters grappling with certain aspects of their pasts, the pivotal moments that end up defining them, that turn out to structure their specific trajectories, though they didn't necessarily realize at the time that these moments would be central to their lives. Actually, it's rare that any of us realize this, and one of the things I'm interested in is the incidental nature of such moments. They may appear to be quite personal, a child's finger cut by a razor, a night of burning notebooks, an obsession with stamps, the decision to take a straw hat on holiday. But as it turns out,
the personal is always overwritten by much broader historical and political conditions. The intimate obsessions of the characters, the accidents of their individual lives, are linked inevitably to a wider geography, both temporal and spatial, which they cannot, despite their best efforts, outrun. My stories attempt to explore some of these paradoxes of the personal and the non-personal, the intimate and the public, toward a consideration of what such disjunctive links might do. So I'd like to read an excerpt from the first story in the collection called Chinese Apples. The 30-year-old narrator is looking back at a magical summer spent in Japan with her parents and her little sister when she was 10, 10 years old, before the horrors of the war of oil and cancer, before the death of her beloved mother. She describes her obsession with what she calls story objects and how they allow you to connect to others and how they can break your heart. Japan is marvelous when you're 10. Japan is a street fair with white paper lights strung overhead. Japan is clip-clopping in wooden shoes through the twinkling night, your parents sauntering behind, pinkies linked, your sister, small as a dot on a map, safe in a stroller. Japan is a teal-colored kimono with a glorious peach sash. Japan is streets full of people you don't understand, laughing, pausing for breath, celebrating something unknown. In Japan, I was still the cherry blossom princess with a view of the world extended. That trip, a month and a half of our lives, now over two decades behind me. My father training to use complicated medical instruments, acquiring valuable expertise. My mother, my sister, and me along for the ride, suspended in a new place for a while, away from our desert home. That trip to Japan, an old man with Chinese apples, my sister the dot, not falling, but almost. That trip to Japan, a razor on a windowsill, four rice people in a box under glass. That trip, before the war that saves some of us, before my mother says, my babies, my babies, take care of my babies. We were perfectly happy then, perfectly aligned, the four corners of a perfect square. Every weekday morning in Japan, my mother would carefully place my four-year-old sister in a stroller and push her along the lovely tree-lined street near our apartment. The dot would squint her eyes at the sunlight squeezing through the trees, examining curiously the green and gold specks streaming across her arms. The dot wasn't very talkative then. She was thoughtful and maybe a little sad, like she knew something she wished she didn't. I didn't take her silence too seriously. I was content to be left alone, collecting the story objects I would share with her at night. The first week of our stay, my mother was preoccupied with the quotidian, figuring out where to get bread, butter, honey, vegetables, where to go in case either of us split our heads open, how to heat the water, how to pay for things. 
I didn't mind. I could never have enough time to myself. Like the dot, I too like to be more quiet than loud. Surrounded by people speaking a language I didn't understand, the trip to Japan was ideal for expanding my collection. Without the usual tonnage of verbal distractions, I was free to devise my own. I have collected story objects for as long as I can remember. Story objects are both objects and stories. Either the object or the story may come first. Most of the time, I select an object. It can be anything, a pouch of cat's eye marbles, a sweaty scrap of blanket, Mr. Potato Head's smile, a, wooden, a small wooden bear, a pendant of a pyramid at Giza, a white cotton robe with blue flowers, a tiny packet of playing cards wrapped in fuchsia tissue paper. The object might appear in a room, under the seat of a car, on a desert trip, behind a green trash can, on a forgotten shelf. I don't necessarily have to save, own, or touch the object. Spotting it, even fleetingly, is usually enough. But once in a while, I stroke the object methodically, my fingers creating an invisible grid around it, then cradle it possessively in my arms to feel the story enter me directly. Thanks. I just have one or two questions and then we'll hear about, about um, we'll have Tom read. Um, obviously the piece that you read there was about, um, about memory and the memories triggered by um, these objects and you mentioned in your little introduction um, that you have a memory of Kuwait as a, a very outward looking place. I'm, I've been doing some research as well. You've talked about you know, Kuwait as a very outward looking place that welcomed diversity and difference. Um, and looked for progress and so on. And you, I, I read that you felt not many people, or you felt that not many people shared this memory with you. Mm -hmm. um, and you almost, you wrote as a way of kind of reaching out to people to say, mm -hmm. do, you know, do you have this memory too? And I was wondering, have you, did, do you get a, did you get a reaction to that, these, these specific memories? Did people come back to you and say they remembered it too? Yeah, that's really interesting. So. I mean, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to write this collection was that I felt things, especially, this was especially after 9-11, but maybe from about 2004 onwards, it just felt like not only was everything closing in in Kuwait, mm -hmm. but especially this, this feeling that the place that I had grown up with was not only being obliterated, but everybody had forgotten it ever existed. It was like the whole country was kind of going through a state of amnesia that a different way of life had had existed before you know the, the, in the 1970s through the 1980s things changed after 1990 so in some ways I, I wanted to write the story as a way to kind of open up a window for myself because mm -hmm. it felt so incredibly stifling and also to kind of rekindle a memory of something that I was quite convinced had exist but nobody around me was seemed to confirm or remember and and then funnily enough once once the book was published published or people had, had, had read the book, there are people that have come up to me and say, yes, we do, in fact, you know, you're not yeah. living in a vacuum. This did happen. And then in some ways also as I was writing, although I wasn't thinking about audience, one small group of people that I felt I was writing to were 
were this kind of s small group of, of people my own age who had gone to international schools in Kuwait, mm -hmm. who had experienced some of the things that I had gone through. And I, I kind of kept that audience. It, it allowed me to, to write mm -hmm. the stories just keeping that audience in my head. Mm -hmm. And so that group in particular has confirmed that I, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that what I imagined um, or remembered was in fact at least parts of it were, um, I don't want to say true, but at least that, that that experience was there. Because something that comes up often, again and again in the book, is this sense of the, the hope and the, the vitality of, of youth and how that is you know, curtailed and sort of damped down by circumstances around these young people yeah. and you was that something that you that you felt that you saw around you when you talk of things closing in circumstances closing in I the did. landscape changing even I think that that's true I mean in some ways that's the experience of youth you know so you get older things the possibilities seem to don't seem as expansive as they did when you were younger but but I also think that in the Middle East in particular I mean in Kuwait but uh, of course elsewhere even harsher and more 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 Violently, as we've been witnessing over the over the course of the summer, um, y you know, young people's lives do come crashing in on them. You know that the, the kind of possibility that you feel uh, that excitement of youth is is limited by mm -hmm. by these again ge the geopol geopolitics of of the region. So I felt that was pr particularly true in Kuwait. So we were living in a kind of bubble in the 70s and 80s, and that came crashing down in the 90s. And then you're seeing it again and again in different ways and, and much harsher, more violent ways uh, in the region around us. So I think that that's, so it's, it's an experience that's universal to everyone, you know, growing up, you know, the, the things that, that come along, the, the restricting or limiting of possibilities that come with adulthood and the loss of childhood. But on the other hand, I felt like there was something about the experience in Kuwait and in the Middle East that made it more intense. You know, and I, and I think about, you know, growing up, I grew up with people from all over the world, and I would think of people, you know, in Sweden, for example, who have, have you know, this life that just, it just seemed so, so perfect, so idyllic, you know, that they didn't have to go through the kinds of things that, that we had to go through and that their homes were not under threat, you know, and all of that. And it just seemed such a sharp contrast to me, you know, and that was one of the things I was exploring in the, in the stories. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Just for the moment, let's turn to um, Tom's collection, Stay Up With Me. Tom, could you give us a little bit of an introduction and a, and a reading so we can get a sense sure. of the book? And I just want to say that I'm reading May's book right now, and it's extraordinary. It's so good. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I'll just do very, very short that, that as uh, the stories are set in New York City and, and upstate. And a nice thing is, is I didn't necessarily, at, at first, I wondered if I had a collection because I'd written them over time. And then I gave them to a few friends and they said, yeah, you know, just because I guess they were linked more thematically. What I say to people is, in life, if you obsess over things, it can get irritating, but in fiction, it often works for you, you know, because it's, <laughs> if you keep returning to the same things, it seems to, to somehow work out. So, um, and then I'll just, I'll do a little setup for this story is, is called Balloon Night. And um, uh, my family lived on the block where they blew up the Macy's Day pr uh, balloon parades and we had a party every year. So this is a, a, a party, and it's a man uh, named Timken, and um, two days before his balloon night party, his wife has left him. This did not happen to me, incidentally. Um, but he, um, it's a type of party where they don't have to invite guests, people just show up, and so he has no, he can't, he's not in a state of mind, nor could he 
cancel the party, so he has to go through with it, and he's decided to say that his wife Amy is away on a business trip. And um, so I'm going to just pick it up in the middle of the story, um, and then I think that's that's best. Okay, so um, so he's, he has a few guests here, and and people are are starting to drink. Um, as you'll know by the first line I read. Timkin had down three decent-sized scotches by the time Snoopy sprouted limbs. He peered down at the street at the lot of them, Garfield and some dinosaur he couldn't name, and Big Bird and Kermit and two M&Ms and some newer cartoon characters whose names he had yet to learn, some yellow Pokemon thing, illuminated by Klieg lights in the dark night. As a child, it had looked like an army of giant aliens had taken over his street. Back inside, he started to inventory the guests. There were more of his friends here than hers now, but a few high school and college chums of Amy's had entered the party without his noticing, and he would have to tell him his story about her being away. From conversational snippets, he could hear things like, poor thing, in an awful hotel at a sales conference, or I heard they canceled her flight. I haven't talked to Amy in so long, her friend from Middlebury College, Melanie, whom Timken had always had a thing for, said, I can't believe she'd miss this. She was so heartbroken over it, Timkin said, and then maybe too quickly switching the subject. You look healthy and happy. <laughs> it's what joblessness and poverty do to you, she said. What happened? Too long a story. Part of that oppressive cloud that's been hanging over the New York theater world. I'm sleeping on someone else's floor right now. How about you? I'm good, Timkin said. How so, Melanie asked. He tried to think of an answer. Because the world can still produce things like this, he gestured around the room. A bunch of irritatingly bourgeois people holding drinks, she asked. <laughs> the whole thing, I depend on it. It's good fun if you look at it the right way, Melanie said. You know, I never really thought that Amy liked this. Oh, she does, Timkin said. It's her favorite night of the year. She looked at him, if you say so. Timkin noticed Melanie's empty drink glass. As he went to fill her water, someone slapped his back, Malcolm, from his Saturday morning basketball games. I love these parties, and you know why? Malcolm was looking at Melanie as he pondered this. Timken didn't wait for the answer because he saw three older couples walk into his apartment, business associates of his father's and their wives, all of whom would stay for around 45 minutes and then leave for another party in the building. Happened every year. They brought expensive wine and spent most of their time talking to Amy, who had a way with the older set. Malcolm was attempting to corner Melanie, who managed to slip away and across the apartment. There were several people leaning their heads and torsos out of the window like kids and yelling at the cartoon characters below. The Svenvolds were still in their coats, and so Timkin helped remove them and carried them into his bedroom, hers a fitted trench with a plaid inlay, and his a long gray cashmere coat that Timkin would love to own. He liked the style of his parents' friends, their breadth of experience and flowery elegance, their love of old jazz standards and good stiff drinks. Not infrequently, Timkin wished that he'd lived in their day because he didn't always feel suited to his own, especially not now after what had happened. Here comes the roadrunner, someone yelled. That isn't the roadrunner, Malcolm yelled back. There's no fucking roadrunner. Sorry. <laughs> there were now well-intentioned crowds in the kitchen, the foyer, in the dining room and living room, and in all three bedrooms were smaller circles, friends catching up after years of not seeing one another. The party was on cruise control, and Timkin thought, as he did every year at around this point, that he could just up and leave, and the party would take care of itself. They wouldn't even know he'd left. He held up his hands like a camera lens and looked around. If you wanted a photograph or a movie scene about New Yorkers in the new millennium, you could do worse than to shoot this group, he thought. What are you doing, Mr. Svenbold asked him. I'm thinking of my father, he said. 
which wasn't true until he said it, and that little instamatic used to bring out. I miss him, Mr. Svenbold said. You know how far back we go. Mr. Svenbold's eyes went glassy just then, and Timken saw that he wanted to talk about Timken's father, which Timken wasn't anxious to do. He wondered how his parents would take the news of Amy's leaving, but even as he wondered this, he kept glancing at the door to see if one of the new faces coming in was Amy's. The doorman buzzed up. Timken listened to the intercom. I've got a group of young guys here that say they know you. What are their names? Robert and Jason and some of their friends. There were students of his whom Timken had told about the balloon block. He told the doorman to let them up. We can only stay a few minutes, said Robert, who was dressed in a thrift shop tuxedo. Stay as long as you like, Timken said magnanimously. Now someone put on Timken's favorite John Coltrane CD, and Timken got pulled into a conversation with three of his friends from an old job about a colleague who monopolized the one office bathroom. Timken nodded as someone spoke. He had no opinion on the subject. Groups of guests went downstairs to see the balloons up close, and Timken decided to go with them. He put Lilia in charge of the party while he was gone, and then he walked downstairs and out into the crowds. There must have been 5,000 people milling around wrapped in furs or long overcoats or ski parkas or leather jackets, high school and college kids and heavily champagne 60-year-olds linking arms and singing. Timken thought then of what a good place it would be for a terrorist to strike, how many prosperous lives could go up in flames. Lots of kids and lots of adults acting like kids, calling out to one another and sipping from flasks. Timken felt almost happy, and somehow because he was doing this, he thought something good might happen. He missed Amy, and he felt as though he'd figured out their problems. If she came back, he would know how to do it differently. He himself would be different, and it would work. They would have children before too long, and this whole party would mean something else. Wherever she was, he knew she was thinking of him. How could she not? This was their night. The air had chilled, and he could see his breath. He realized he didn't really know the group he was out on the street with. They were the friends of Jordan, and Jordan was here. But Timken had never really liked Jordan that much. He thought Jordan was spiteful and shallow and possibly an alcoholic. He thought he recognized some of the faces he passed, a few of the people he'd grown up in the neighborhood, including a girl named Tara Feinberg he'd had a crush on. Hey, she said, how are you? Great, he said, and she said the same. And he kept saying that to everyone who asked. Great, and can't complain. He glanced up at his apartment window and saw the darkened silhouettes of people moving within, touching arms, listening to stories, eating, and laughing. It made him think of store mannequins enacting scenes in the windows of Saks and Barneys. Were there any less lifelike? He was becoming scornful, he thought, and this was not a scornful night, although he kept picturing someone pouring gasoline on one of the balloons and setting it on fire. Back upstairs, he had another scotch, and soon after that, a glass of wine, not so much because he needed or wanted them, but because they gave him things to do other than to get into a long conversation, which he felt would eventually bring him back to Amy. When he was a boy, Timken would go out at midnight in his pajamas to see the balloons. His favorite was always Underdog because he identified with him, and decades later at the end of these parties, he would call Amy Polly Purebred, Underdog's bitch, Amy liked to say, and she would play along. She liked Timken's friends, and they, for the most part, took to her, other than Lilia, who told Timken once that she didn't trust Amy, that she thought Amy would fool around on Timken someday. He looked over it now to Lilia, and she waved to him and returned to her conversation. Timken's mother called at 11.30 to ask how everyone was, and Timken held the phone out to the room so she could hear the party's chatter. What is Amy wearing this year, she asked. Timken described one of Amy's cocktail dresses, a slinky bareback number he'd bought her before a New Year's party at the River Cafe. I'm so glad you're living there that someone's putting that place to good use, his mother said. 
Sabrina Willis asked Timken, which Marriott? She had called, he, oh, he told her that she was at a Marriott in Cincinnati. She'd called one and they hadn't had an Amy Timken registered there. I thought it was a Marriott, he said. Let's call her cell phone. I already did, Timken said. She was going to sleep. She had a long day. Oh, she'll talk to us. I'm calling. Don't, Timken said, a bit too forcefully. I mean, I promised Amy we'd let her sleep. Sabrina shrugged. I miss her. Would you tell her that I missed her? I will, Timken said. And then Sabrina went and joined her husband in the kitchen. There were now, he guessed, 130 people in his apartment. It might have been the best party he'd given. It was cold out and the mold cider had been a good idea and people had had a lot to drink, but not so much that anything out of control was likely to happen. Buzzed himself and feeling flushed. Timken moved from circle to circle, freshening glasses, making introductions, greeting utter strangers who were arriving now in significant numbers. He'd asked a lot of them to leave at around two or maybe three if it was still going strong. Who knew when or if this would ever happen again? It reminded him of an Irish wake, a celebration at a time of loss, though he wasn't ready to say that he'd lost anything. Someone reached around and hugged him then from behind. Amy, he thought, just as he'd wanted, as he'd been imagining all night. The grip was tight and had all of the affection and penitence he had anticipated from her. But it was Lilia. What's up, he said, and she held his glance for too long. I know, she said. You know? I'm not blind. She'll be here tomorrow, Timken said. Lilia smiled sadly. It's true, you know, he, he said, still believing it. Fuck her, Lilia said. I'm drunk, Timken said proudly, as you should be. Someone pushed the music louder. The dining room table got cleared off to the side, and around a dozen people were dancing. The lights dropped. A woman in a tight lavender dress whispered something into the ear of a faintly bearded man in a crisp white dress shirt. People filled every room in the apartment, the kitchen, the bedrooms, and the hallways. Strangers would sleep together tonight, he thought. Maybe someone was falling in love. Timken pictured Amy out in the street looking up at their window. Would she have any idea what was happening inside? Would she know what she was missing? Would she see all that was still possible? It felt like the moment in a movie before something terrible occurred, before the iceberg or the rogue wave. If I could only stop the film right here, he thought. He took a deep breath and let the spinning room and Lilia's solicitous face settle before his eyes. You know what she told me once? She asked. What? She told me once she almost didn't marry you, that what it came down to more or less was how much she loved this apartment. <laughs> That's bullshit, Timken said. She leaned in and kissed him and Timken pulled away as if from a flame. He refused to believe Amy would ever say anything so unkind. His love for her was his insulation against whatever bad news the world had in store for him. He stood now at the center of the dance floor, at the center of his party, and soaked it all in, all the love and laughter. He closed his eyes, and when he opened them again, his guests were all looking his way. He could see everyone from everywhere, his childhood friend and his high school teachers, his colleagues from work and people he had liked and admired or secretly feared. They were all here, and likely Amy was here somewhere as well. That was the nature of the night. You could see your entire past all at once, and you could figure out who you were and what it all added up to. Timken took a long sip of what he hoped was his own drink, then held the glass aloft. Someone cut the music. They were waiting for the host to speak. To Amy, he called out to everyone he could see. To Amy, a chorus of them yelled back. And if this was only the start of the darkest part of his life, Timken marveled at what he'd already been able to make of it. Thanks.
I have a couple of questions for Tom and then you'll get your, your chance to ask questions of our authors. Um, so just give you a little warning so you can have a think. Um, and Tom, before you read there, you said that the, the collection represented your work over a, a span of years and I'm, I'm presuming you had to look over the stories as they were put together for the collection. Can you trace changes in your writing over, over time and did you get to work on them again before and did you even want to? before they were put in the collection? Yeah, I did. I mean, I mean, a lot of the stories were written more recently, but some were, were mm -hmm. from, you know, had been published in one form. And, and what was fun is to go back to stories that have been in magazines and, and do a little bit of changes. You know, just, well, I spotted things that I couldn't believe anybody had let in, you know, <laughs> in print. Uh -huh. and, um, and so, yeah, because I think I've, I've gotten smarter, at least about the stories, you know, and, I, and I'm pleased with what I was able to do, sort of in that last, those, those final stages of, of putting the book together. So it was more sort of cosmetic changes that you made, not great structural See, changes. I think May, having read some of May, will agree with me. What I say about stories is, is that until they, they're perfect, they suck. And, <laughs> and what I mean by perfect isn't necessarily that it's perfect, like the greatest thing. It just means that I won't budge on anything. But if, if yeah. there's only, in, in a novel, you can have things that are imperfect, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's, it's almost better. Mm -hmm. But in, so, so when I, there are little cosmetic things, but I really didn't feel like the story, until I made those slight changes, were successful until I'd made the, even those last little things. Mm -hmm. so, and yeah. you mentioned before that you have, that you've worked as a reporter, I think, on a, on a newspaper. Yeah. Did that experience shape your writing in any way? I think it may have fed into one of the stories in the collection yeah. of Paris. Completely. Yeah. 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 Well, I feel like um, I feel like it's a great apprenticeship for a writer because my I was in this rural county outside Syracuse. I got to Syracuse and I thought, oh, I'm in the boondocks, and they said, no, not so fast. And they sent me to Oswego County, which is you know it, it, it's really the boondocks. You know, I mean, even by anybody's terms. Um, and um, and it was a perfect place for a New York City kid to go. Um, mm -hmm. But I needed to run around and find stories, you know, and, and listen to people, and and um, so it was a great experience for me. You know, and then I got a lot of uh, my first novel set in that county, and and, uh, and there are some stories that are upstate stories. But I I felt like it was the perfect thing for me to do. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's time for questions from the floor. We have a microphone, and if you could wait until you you get the microphone uh, before you ask your question, that would be fantastic. Or is there anybody who would like to start questions from the audience tonight? Great. Uh, just yeah, over here, please. As a bookseller, I find it quite difficult to sell short story collections. Were you ever, either of you, concerned about limiting your audience because you were you were doing a short story collection? I didn't have to. I mean, I have to say that when I st I didn't think of it that way. Um, as I started writing, the. Sh it felt like there was no choice. I wasn't going to plunge into a novel, although, like I said, maybe that would have been better. Who knows? But I've, I, I was going to do the short stories either way. And, I, and in fact, what's interesting is I didn't send them out. I know you're supposed to send them out and get them published. And I had a few stories that I sent out to literary journals that got published. But in the end, it just felt like a project that I was going to do regardless of audience or selling the book or whatever it was. And I think I was very lucky that when I did, I, I, I guess I did my homework on who to send it to. And so then when I did send it, it was accepted and, um, you know, with, I guess, the, that, that, that a novel was forthcoming, which, which it is. 
Um, so that, that I think that that was what, what encouraged the, the publishers uh, to, to give the, the collection a chance. I don't know, I mean, this kind of idea that short stories don't sell, but short stories, you know, people do read short stories and they win awards and, you know, so I'm always surprised that publishers or, or booksellers or, or, or audiences or readers are not interested or seem not to be interested in the short story when in fact somebody must be reading them. Definitely. No. Yeah. I would just say with my 16 years yeah. as a bookseller, mm. yeah. it is more difficult. Unless you're talking yeah. about Alice Munro or people like that, yeah. selling short story yes. collections. Yeah. And when you are doing the book buying, yeah. you have to take that in, <laughs> into consideration. Yes. Tom, do you have a sense of... of yeah, I, I was going to speak to that. It seems, we we're just talking about this before, it, 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 it's for whatever reason, it's probably because of the two of us. No, I'm just kidding. It, it seems like it's a, a year for short stories. There's, there's, yeah, I mean, we just heard, you know, Graham Swift's amazing reading, and, there, and there's so many other terrific collections that came out in the States. And what was nice is that it didn't seem like we were stealing the sunlight from one another. It seemed like cumulatively um, people suddenly decided, this is my time to read stories. And, and I had one bookseller who was, who was very enthusiastic about all this, saying that it, it might be people's shortened attention spans, yes, you know, that, you, that in fact, so what you did is you, you had, had people, okay, well, I can't commit myself to a whole book, you know, and, and, you know, and then they were, they could commit themselves to a story, and then one by one they were reading these collections. But it seems like a really good time suddenly. We, I think we're just maybe lucky, you know, that, that it seems to be a, a big time for short stories. So. Yeah. Yeah. Time to read in short bursts. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there was a question just here, please. Here. I have a question for me. I've worked with teenagers in Kuwait for four years as a teacher and um, the thing that struck me about Kuwait initially was that there's, there's not a great deal of um, reading culture at the moment. Now that might be different when you were a child but at the moment I feel that there's not a great deal of reading culture and I was so surprised when I read your short stories that you obviously have a great depth of literature and, and your stories are very very sophisticated. And my question is, um, how important do you think that encouraging reading within the youth of Kuwait is? And how would you go about doing that? So I do think you're right that it's very different today than it is when I was growing up. Now, I did go to a, I went to one of the international schools. Did you say you were teaching at one of the international schools yeah. in Kuwait? I mean, I was teaching in, I, I mean, I went to school at the American school in Kuwait. And the books were everywhere. That was just a in, huge part of, of growing up and I read voraciously and and for me re, you know the reason I became a writer was because I read for like I'm sure it is the case for, for all writers and and I think that that's so incredibly important because it, in, in a place like Kuwait it, it, in many ways it's one it's a fundamental way for, for kids to experience what it's like to to see from a different perspective to live a different life that they wouldn't otherwise be able to so, and unfortunately in the government schools, the Arabic schools, it's, the situation is even worse. And I think also given the various technologies, and I think this, is, this might be a worldwide phenomenon, not just um, pertinent to Kuwait, that there is less reading. There's, and like you said, there's just less attention. And I think reading requires attention. It requires you to, to take the time and, and to be slow and to be able to concentrate. And I see that even for me as, as someone who teaches at university. I, you know, and, and I teach 
students of literature. And even, in, even there, you have a, a problem with, with students wanting to or having the, the ability to read in, in long sustained um, pieces. What the solution is, um, I, I really don't know. On the other hand, I mean, books are still selling in different forms, in different formats. But so, so I, I don't know how. I think that it would require a real overhaul of this, the system of education in Kuwait, which is going through real problems on a, you know in many 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 levels, not just in terms of literacy. So that is a, and it, it requires the, go, you know, the government to commit to making those changes. So. But, but you know what's interesting, I'm just talking about education and, not, and I'm, I'm thinking about the states, is, is what I find when I teach even my undergraduates is I'm teaching them how to read a little bit differently than they're used to reading. And, I, and my sense is, is as a writer I teach them how to read, but they end up, a lot of people that might not otherwise love literary fiction quickly love it. And so I wish that there was a, a, a different type of education in the schools that, that basically, it's the same way as like you need to learn how to love good coffee or good wine, you know, or anything. And part of it is just by experiencing it and having someone who knows it to tell you what to look for. And so maybe if there was a different type of education, we could develop a whole generation of, of and it would be good for everybody. Yeah. But because it doesn't seem like it's happening, and people people are leaving school, at least in the states, without an appetite. I, I'm so, and you know, when you see the raised letter thriller in the plane, and you want to like grab it and put May's book in their hands or something, you know, and it's just. So I think there has to be some. I, I, it would be good if if a certain sort of education came that created that kind of appetite for literary fiction. Just behind you. Uh, thank you both for being here. Um, my question is for May, because I'm actually from Kuwait as well. <laughs> and I'm just finishing up my master's at the university here. But um, as writing, and I, I haven't had the pleasure of reading your book yet, but con since most of the stories are concerning Kuwait or um, the Middle East, and I can attest to the collective amnesia that you were talking about, that is very true. But something that I'm conscious of when I'm writing stories about Kuwait is it's such a small community socially. Do you ever find that people see themselves in your stories in a way that might not be favorable and have they, they come to you for that? Because I know that most writers, can, they, they would probably attest to that, that people can recognize themselves in their story, but given what the community is like in Kuwait, and you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> has, has, anyone, has anyone ever come to you and said, oh, I recognize myself in that scenario. Uh, yes, but they were flattered. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's very funny. Um, so so it, it's very interesting, because when I was growing up, Kuwait was very much like that, that you, you, know, you, you would walk out and, and you'd go shopping and everybody would recognize you. But I find it's much less, much less that way today. There is a, a degree of anonymity, and people don't know each other, and it's just I think because it's bigger and the, the population has increased, and the, in some ways there's a different kind of diversity. Um, so n no, I haven't really had that particular experience, except for a few of the people that I grew up with. And it's not an autobiographical book, but of course, you know, traces of my experience find their way into the stories. And so some people have recognized themselves, but like I said, they were. They were excited to be in. <laughs> yeah, I had I did a reading in New York, and there was a whole bunch of family and friends, and they were all kind of arguing who they were in the stories, you know. So, and they weren't most of them weren't, but it was it was very funny to see that. I know who you were. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Time for another question. Mm. Lady just here. 
Um, I'm just wondering if you could both say what you think makes a good story, a good short story, what you think the secret of a good short story is. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, there's a, a lot of components, but for me, um, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's the consciousness you know, of, of, the, of the central character, that idea of, of being able to inhabit another soul, being able to be, so that you drop into someone else's concern so deeply. They might connect to yours, but they are someone else's. And it's, I mean, I, I think writing, for me at least, is, is an act of empathy, of, of sort of creating another human being and, and creating a new set of concerns. And I think that same thing is for a reader. And if I don't have that, I, I don't connect with the story, and so, I mean, there's a, a lot of other elements I could say, but the, but the first thing is for me to believe that I'm, I'm in another, another person's mind and body and heart. So. I mean, I couldn't agree more with that. And, but also for me, the beginning of, of the story is, is really important, is that first line. I mean, that's also true of anything, I mean, even a novel, but there's something about that first line, that first paragraph of a short story. And then I'm really interested in form. I, I am really interested in the way that, you know, the structure and the kind of shape of not just short stories, but I think in particular short stories require that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a discipline. And so in some ways, I'm really interested in kind of figuring out the particular shape of the story will take. And, and when I read short stories, I'm also interested in trying to figure out what, what writers are, are doing and how they're kind of formulating the beginning, the end, and then every, everything in between and how it holds together. Just over here. Thank you very much. Um, I've read your book, Mia, and um, really, really liked it. Um, I'm just picking up on that. Um, the bits about the vignettes in between the, the individual stories, could you explain what that was yeah. about a bit? Uh, so the vignettes are short little pieces that are narrated in the first person by a recurring character named Mina, looking back at this period growing up in Kuwait in the 19, around the 1980s. And so I think of the vignettes as a kind of invisible line that's that's holding the stories together. And it's, it's one of the things that links the stories because her voice creates a kind of coherence to the stories. All the vignettes kind of open up a perspective on the stories, some of them very, very tangential. Some, you, it, you, you know, maybe it's a word that holds it and others, the link to the following story is more obvious. But so the vignettes, it's funny, I wrote the vignettes all in one go and I thought that maybe they would appear at the very end. But then I thought that that might be very difficult to ask the reader to figure out which vignette would, would attach to which story. So it made more sense to put the vignette uh, preceding each of the stories. And I didn't think of it that way to begin with. That was just something that I, I kind of figured out towards the end. And I, I kind of hoped that it would give the collection, um, again, a, a kind of coherence that it, you know, or add to the, the sense of the stories being connected. And I think there was one more question in the middle, just here. Hi, also a question for me. Um, I've been reading the collection, I haven't finished, but read about four or five of the stories, and I'm enjoying them, but I find them, they're quite slippery. They kind of, they can't hold them down. They can't grasp, you know, the stories don't go in, don't necessarily go where you think they're going to go. The characters don't do what you think they're going to do. Um, 
which I like very much because it's unpredictable, but given what you were saying earlier about the physical material loss and destruction of society, I wonder to what extent you think that's forced your style, your creative imagination to maybe go in a different direction, you know, the, the sense of restlessness is yeah. always present, it seems to me. That's a really interesting question and a really great observation, I think, in some ways. I do feel, um, in many ways, the experience going through 1990 and, you know, the the invasion of Kuwait, and then everything that's happened since then in the region has kind of created a sense of homelessness or not feeling of not belonging, you know, feeling kind of um, in between worlds or, or feeling exilic. And, and then in some ways, your writing or writing becomes the home that you don't have. Now, I'm very lucky I have a home, you know, I'm not saying that I don't, but there is a sense that, I, that you've picked up on that this kind of um, the intransience of, of a place, not knowing that you're going to be able to, to be in this place forever has created in me a sense of, of um, or I guess in my writing, of not being able to pin down the very thing that I want to pin down. So, I mean, I, I think that that is something that has, has affected my style. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And Tom, very quickly, I mean, you, you live in, in California, but you tend to write, your imagination goes back to New York, which is where you're from as well. Right. So does, does what May is saying kind of resonate with you as well, this idea of home and where you write about how you connect with place. Yeah, and I was also thinking about you know the, you know May is talking about about you know uh, up until uh, um, the first Iraq War, I guess, and what the effect on Kuwait. And I would say, for me, the effect of 9/11 on New York sort of. I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a very particular sort of New York. Um, I tell people if you want to know the New York I grew up in, watch the fr the French Connection or Dog Day Afternoon, and you have the kind of kind of gritty you know, graffiti everywhere, and, and a pretty tough place, sort of pre-Giuliani, pre-Disneyfied 42nd <laughs> Street, and then you know 9/11 happened, and I went back. I wrote a, a book that was um, about um, the bond firm Cantor Fitzgerald in the aftermath of 9/11, but New York was the, this this sort of scary place and this kind of invulnerable place. And then it became a very vulnerable place, and it was it was transformed for me. And my affection for the city after that just grew as a sort of, and my sort of tender feelings towards New York as a place. And then it's been changed again. So that it it, it is very different every time I come back, and that's part of why I probably keep coming back to it in my writing. So, thank you. We'll have to leave it there for tonight. Thank you very much, all of you, for coming along. It's been great to see you. Remember to vote for your choice in the first book award. It's our chance as readers to champion our favorite piece of new writing and I hope you'll explore all the books on the list, including May's, and then place your vote. You should see um, a leaflet just like this in the entrance tent um, and you can vote at the orange ballot box um, in the same place. Or you could go to edbookfest.co.uk. There will be a signing after this and you'll be able to ask uh, more questions of our authors and the signing will take place in the main bookshop just along the, the walkway here and as we leave the tent if you could all stay in your seats till we, we get in position and then um, Tom and uh, May will be very happy to speak to you then. I want to say thank you to Claire and the venue staff uh, for tonight's event and could you please join me in saying thank you to our authors tonight. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.